big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons, Katrine, Carrie, Meg, Rebecca, Inca, Sigrid, Megan, Alyssa, and Cynthia. If you want to be like these amazing people and get access to our notes and other bonus content, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now enjoy this week's episode covering the third part of the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility with our guest, Janae Randall. Okay, wait. So Becca, I saw on your Instagram thing about American Girl dolls. I'm like, we just need to talk about that. Oh, man. Okay, so my boyfriend says, Mike, as the listeners know him, says, oh, man, I never really got the whole American Girl doll thing. And I was like, how can you not get the American Girl doll thing? And I put it out on Instagram in a poll of whether or not I should dump him or force him to understand. And a lot of people responded to that in the DMs being like, honestly, I didn't get it either. And I was like, what? What? I know. I am shook it. Listen, I, my whole, I, I had those books. I would read them constantly. Like even the ones I didn't have, I would take them out from the library. Like I got that. I got so excited when they started making the ones that you could like customize to look like yourself. I went to the American Girl doll store when it opened in New York. Mm-hmm. I was like, let me go. Mm-hmm. Even though I was too old for American Girl by then. But like, but still. it was so cool. It was like stepping into a into an era of nostalgia. And they, I mean, they are the essence of nostalgia. That's exactly what it is. It's American culture at its peak. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of culture, Jane Austen. Yes. Yeah, should we talk about Jane Austen? <laughs> This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the middle portion of the 1995 Sense and Sensibility starring Alan Rickman and the cast of Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) And also Kate Winslet. (laughs) And Hugh Grant. (laughs) And Hugh Grant. I guess he's not in Harry Potter either. I just forgot everybody else's names for a second. Just those two. Just those two. Directed by Ang Lee, written by Emma Thompson. Written by Emma Thompson, Dame Emma Thompson. And we are joined today by a very special guest, our friend Janae Randall. Hi, Janae. How's it going? I feel like I threw you off slightly because I started giggling while you were doing the intro because <laughs> it was like... A- I was having a weird meta moment because I was like, I've listened to these voices so many times in my ears. And now I'm here. And now you're here. <laughs> yes. Janae, do you want to tell the people a little bit about what you do? Sure. So hi, everyone. I'm Janae. Um, I'm a digital content creator slash relatively new podcaster. Uh, and I exist in a lot of places on the internet, mainly my podcast, which is The Book Was Better, where I, a self-proclaimed bookworm and cinephile, get together with my friends to basically figure out whether or not the book was better. I did have Becca and Molly on last season to talk about Pride and Prejudice. I'm currently working on season two and uh, Molly will be making another appearance. We'll be talking about Harry Potter. So that will be coming to your podcast players, hopefully soon. (laughs) So before we get started talking about this lovely movie with you, we are going to ask you our standby Jane Austen questions for any guest. First being, what's your relationship to Jane Austen? So I have a very long relationship with Jane Austen. I've always loved her books. It kind of started, I don't know if it was when I was in college, but I do remember the first time I read all of her books, with the exception of Sandition, that's the only one I haven't read. Um, I took a Jane Austen class in school because I was like, I mean, this is just an excuse to read. That's what that's what class is for, right? Like, so uh, I took a Jane Austen class and I read all her books and then I watched like all of the adaptations and I actually wrote my final term paper on adapting Jane Austen into the modern day, which um, I feel like 
<laughs> is very apt considering my podcast that I do. <laughs> I guess I was just really, really on brand. But yeah, no, I've always loved the stories and I've always loved the characters and just the way that she writes. And in fact, when I, fir- when I first moved to the UK, I wasn't allowed to work. So I was kind of just stuck at home and I was like, what can I do? And the two things that I did were watch Friends from beginning to end. And I also bought a copy of every single one of her novels and I reread them all just for fun. And that was just really delightful. And I still do that from time to time. So big old book nerd over here and also big old Jane Austen nerd. Uh, which makes you a perfect uh, guest on this show and also means that you basically did what Molly's now doing for entertainment, but as a college course. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So second question, what is your favorite Austin book or adaptation? Basically, what's your favorite Jane Austen content out there? I really had to think about this one because I love them all. But the book that I go back to time and time again is probably Mansfield Park. It's not one of her as well-known ones, but in terms of characters, I think I see a lot of myself in Fanny Price, which may be, may be a good thing, maybe a bad thing. Once you've read the book, Molly, you can, you can let me know your feelings on that. But certainly elements of my life, I definitely like felt a deep connection to her. Like even when I'm not, if I've put the book aside for a bit, I'm literally doing something else. I'll be going, oh, I hope Fanny's okay. You know, so I'm like still, I'm like still thinking about her even when I, I'm not actively reading the book. Um, I don't know if there's a particular adaptation that I love. I think they're all great. And I actually also really enjoy when they do like modern takes on them. I think they're a good laugh. Even if they're not always great, they're a good laugh. They definitely are. But sometimes they are great. Uh, Looking at Clueless. Yes. No, Clueless is great. From Prada to Nada, eh, maybe not so much. I haven't seen from Prada to Nada, but I am so excited by the notion of it. I watched a trailer and it looks like hot garbage. I'm really excited for that one. I feel like you definitely got you need to do an episode on it purely because I just want to hear your reactions to things. Yeah, well, we actually we have a guest lined up for that one who's like excited about it. So I have someone who specifically was like, what I want to see with you two is Prada to Nada. Oh, my God, that's amazing. That's incredible. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to why that person chose that one and just to find out. But Molly, have you seen the trailer at all? No, I have. I'm going completely blind. Good. I'm so thrilled by that. Okay. Um, which character, uh, Janae, do you relate to the most? I mean, I, I feel like I, in my younger years, I definitely would have said Fanny Price. She is someone I definitely do relate to. But I feel like now, I don't know if I'm necessarily one, but an amalgamation of a few different ones like there's I'm like yeah a bit of Elizabeth sure I'll take it a bit of Marianne a bit of you know like put them all in a pot and mix them together and I'm kind of a bit of that I think that's true because Austin's very good at writing like very dynamic female characters so a lot of them are very relatable yeah yeah definitely like a Marianne Sun Elizabeth Moon Fanny Price (laughs) Rising or something (laughs) situation Yeah. yeah I love that Molly's referencing Fanny Price with no point of reference to who she is. <laughs> Although I do, I, I'm having a flashback to somebody else talked about Mansfield Park at some point during this podcast. And I was like, Fanny Price, isn't that a character in like Funny Girl? <laughs> Listen, I'm picturing Barbara Streisand playing Fanny Price. And I think I think from the point of reference for Molly, she knows that Barbara Streisand playing any character in a Jane Austen adaptation would be odd acting choice wise because Barbara is for the stage and everyone in Jane Austen is for the keeping feelings inside except she could play in her years now a Mrs. Bennett or a Mrs. Jennings or a a Mrs. Dashwood she would play a great Mrs. Bennett she would yeah that would be a lot of fun yeah all right uh and Final Austin question. What is your hottest Austin take? I don't know if I have one, to be honest. I just like, I love it all. Give it all to me. I'll have all of it. Inject it in my veins. I don't have any. <laughs> totally good. Like, I don't know if I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not really controversial. I'm just like, I'll take all of it. Thank you. That's how I feel about most media. Yeah. <laughs> Although Molly's hottest take probably is her level of sexual attraction to Mr. Bennett. Yes. And this is not a hot take. Neither, but my also level of sexual attraction to Mr. Palmer after seeing this movie that we're about to discuss. I mean, I don't blame you. I 100% am on the same page. What a man. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mannequin man. We watched it with Mike and 
He said Hugh Laurie looks like a celery stick with sideburns in this one. Yes, a hot celery stick, <laughs> like a really hot celery stick. And on that note, I think it's time to dive into the plot. Yes. Where we left off, just for everyone's brain, is that a Mr. John Willoughby comes in and uh, sweeps young Marianne off her feet. Literally. So last line we left off at was, you're right. Help me, Eleanor. You are right. Help me, Eleanor. Oh, it's so good. Great line. Iconic. 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 So the next morning, they are, the ladies are trying to learn from Sir John what Willoughby is like. And John is kind of like evading the question. And he goes, he has the smartest little bitch of a pointer. <laughs> she with him. And, uh... We love the dogs. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, like, I relate to John Middleton here because I, too, remember people by their pets. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's it's understandable, at least. For sure. For sure. Uh, He tells them that his aunt or whatever, Lady Allen, not Mrs. Smith, but the same character, Lady Allen, is leaving him her estate. And then Colonel Brandon arrives and he is outside and he's playing with the dogs and he's like running up with these flowers in his hand and Margaret runs out and salutes. He salutes her. Molly, I can feel your hormones like through the computer. (laughs) You're just like oozing. (laughs) But I am too. So it's fine. I'm just like. Brandon! We mentioned it last episode, but I the morning after we watched this film for the first time, yeah, we were still living together at that point in time, and I walked into the kitchen, and Molly was staring at her phone, and she had changed her lock screen to a picture of Alan Rickman playing Colonel Brandon. And I was like, Molly! That's incredible. Yes, indeed, and it is still my lock screen, as a matter of fact. That's phenomenal. So he comes in and says one of my favorite lines, which is, How's the invalid? How's the invalid? (laughs) And he looks so proud of himself. He hands her the flowers and Marianne is like, oh, thank you. And immediately hands them off to Eleanor to put into a vase. She doesn't even like smell them. She doesn't even. She's literally just like, here you go. Get these away. I'm waiting for Willoughby. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Honestly, I, I feel the embarrassment that we talk about in the book a lot, which was like, why is she being so obvious about her feelings? Like at least try yeah she's not being subtle at all she's about as subtle as a frying pan Mm -hmm. and sir john is even less subtle he's like in front of brandon he says he doesn't know why marianne is setting her cap at willoughby when she's already made such a splendid conquest and brandon is like mortified that's the thing about john middleton and mrs jennings is that like they're such good people. They're such nice people. But the feeling of someone talking about your crush on another person when that other person is in the room is one of those things that I can viscerally feel for Alan Rickman's Colonel Brandon here. Yep. And I, you get why Marianne is annoyed with them the entire book. Oh, yeah. It's just their level of subtlety is just basically non-existent. And it's just all very, it's so uncomfortable and just like, the secondhand embarrassment, it's just, it's never ending. Yeah, truly. So then Willoughby starts arriving outside. He's bringing flowers and Marianne starts pinching her cheeks and biting her lips to like make herself rosy, which I thought was a really <laughs> nice touch. As if this girl is not already so rosy. Like she's been rosy this entire movie. Well, do you know what it it made me think of? They did the same thing in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice when Bingley turns up and everyone's like, oh my God. And then Jane is like, and then her mom starts doing it to her as well. And then she's like, leave me alone. Yeah, you're right. And then they all look really dainty. And I was just like, that must be the thing when you know your crush is about to turn up. You just give your cheeks a little pinch. Mm -hmm. So you look very healthy and lively, I guess. I don't know. I used to always do this thing where I would like make sure my hair was okay because my hair is constantly messy and sometimes it's messy in a way I want it to be messy and sometimes it looks like it does over zoom today and (laughs) so like whenever I see someone I was attracted to or trying to attract I would like make sure my hair was in the correct position that would be my thing I would do before I would see the person the way you just said that trying to attract really made you seem like part of the animal kingdom I just need to like (laughs) like you were a peacock listen Listen, we are animals. We are all trying to, we are stumbling around trying to either fight our animal instincts or give in to them entirely. And one of our animal instincts, and this is not for everyone, obviously, but a lot of people in this world just are trying to bang. And 
let's t- let me tell you, during my more hormonal phases of my youth, that was certainly my goals. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's, so let's do, do it like, like they, they do, do on, on the, the Discovery, Discovery Channel. Channel. So <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, he comes in and Brandon is just like so awkward when he's leaving. Basically, John is like, Brandon, we're not wanted anymore. Willoughby's here. Let's go. And he and Willoughby meet outside and kind of awkwardly bow at each other. But at this point, he doesn't know that Willoughby is the bane of his existence. But I also really like how John Middleton is like, yeah, well, we're leaving because it's obvious they don't want us. They want you. Like he's he's like being a bit of a a bro to Brandon, just being like, come on, dude. Yeah, like, let's get out of here. You don't need to watch this. But also things you don't need to say out loud. Yes. Especially not to your your supposed friend's love rival. Maybe just keep that to yourself a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so uncomfortable. Yeah. Willoughby comes in and he brings her wildflowers and she's like, these are not from the hothouse. Like, come on. He just left. Like, he tried. And he and she's like, you know, I've always preferred wildflowers. And he's like, I thought you did. Or like, it's something like that. I figured as much. I don't know. Yeah. She has Eleanor put the flowers right next to her, um, which the ones from Brandon were like behind her. So he sees that they're reading sonnets and a lot of things happen. So he's like, oh, who's reading Shakespeare's sonnets? And they all are like, oh, we are. And Marianne's like, I am. And then they're like, oh, Marianne was reading them out to us. And then he's like, which one's your favorite? And Margaret tries to answer at the same time as Marianne. And um, Eleanor kind of like squeezes her hand and is like, let Marianne talk to him about her sonnets. And I realized that this was so intentional that they're comparing here his relationship with Margaret, like his immediate relationship with Margaret with Edward's immediate relationship with Margaret, which was like BFF. So like he's playing along with her. Meanwhile, Willoughby only cares about Marianne and isn't like trying to even get to know her family. Like he's got eyes only for her. But also poor, poor Margaret, because there's so many times when she just like wants to be involved and people are just like, no, just stay where you are for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, you're a child. Yeah. Except for Edward. Yeah. Who like jumps in and is like, yes, I'm going to play along with you. I'm going to like make you the center of my attention because you're adorable. Colonel Brandon saluted to her. Colonel Brandon saluted her. What did Willoughby do? Yeah. Margaret is the uh, kind of, what's it called? The litmus test for are these men good? Absolutely. Uh, Margaret is not only her own character in this, but she is also just how Emma Thompson makes you care about the love interests that we're supposed to root for. Mm -hmm. But I love this scene because what happens next Molly, tell tell us what happens next. What happens next is he asks um, what her favorite sonnet is. She says 116. And then he says, let not to the true mind admit impediments. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. How does it continue? Oh, no, it isn't. It is an ever fixed mark. Yeah. And then he, Marianne starts saying, oh, no, it is an ever fixed mark. And then he keeps going with, oh, no, it is an ever fixed mark. And I'm like, you just asked her how it continues. Why are you? Oh, it, this part is so embarrassing. Can you imagine being in that room? Oh my God, no. Because they talk over each other for a second and then Marianne stops talking and lets him keep going. And then she does that thing where, you know, when you like talk to yourself when your crush is not looking and you're just like, get it together. And she literally does that. Yeah. She has a moment where she looks down and she's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I made a face for everyone who's listening to this audio podcast. Yes, she's just kind of like, come on. Yeah, she's like, Marianne, lock it up. Yeah. I also think this was a brilliant little screenwriting move from Emma Thompson as well here because they talk a lot in the books about how much they both love Shakespeare so much that he gives her a horse named Queen Mab, which is yeah. just ridiculous. It's like, it's like giving someone a pet named Angelica Schuyler. They're just theater dorks. They are. And that's like, I feel like that's a deep cut one as well like it's kind of recognizable but if you know Shakespeare then you like know oh yeah I see you're like Queen oh Mab. Queen Mab that's so obscure and yeah wonderful but what I'll what the other thing that this uh sonnet accomplishes is it summarizes the love between Marianne and Willoughby as they see it in this moment mm-hmm. because it is love that does not alteration find it is an ever fixed <laughs> mark And that is quite a little bit of genius from Emma Thompson to show the philosophies of these two people when it comes to love are very similar. Yeah. Also, the fact that he says that looks on storms and she says that looks on tempests and then they pause and they're like, ooh. 
And then he says, is it Tempest? And she's like, I think it's Tempest. And like, <laughs> <laughs> she can't not be right. <laughs> she's like, she's right. And we all know she's right. And like, dude, the scansion, come on. But he like is like, oh, I'm so good at Shakespeare. I carry this pocket sonnets with me everywhere. And then doesn't actually know the sonnet when he was like, yeah, I know the sonnet. Also, barf to carrying Shakespeare's sonnets everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like deep barf. I feel like that's slightly his power move to be like, I'm just that much of a romantic that I keep it in my pocket. Right. I was like, do you really? Yeah, I wrote that down. I was like, how much you want to bet? That's actually not <laughs> sonnets in there. Like, what are they? What if they're like? you know regency era nudie pics instead i was gonna say he uses shakespeare's sonnets to hide his nudie pics and carry them around with him oh my god yes because he would he would he absolutely would wow oh man he gives her his sonnets at the end of so he gives her his nudie pics at the end of his visit and says to keep it with her as a talisman against further injury i love that picturing them as not sonnets I, so they're watching him leave and Eleanor is like, well done, Marianne. You really covered all the bases of conversation. And Marianne is like, well, if my feelings were less shallow, then I could conceal them as you do. And then everyone's like, like, because Eleanor was kind of getting on her about being so obvious about her affections for him. And she was like, well, if I didn't like him so much, then I could be a little more subtle like you. And Eleanor like, oh, Emma Thompson has this moment where she's just like, kind of you see her face shift a little bit and then she's like don't trouble yourself and she walks in whereas Marianne is like oh my god I'm so sorry like I didn't mean it like that it's that thing where you like say something it's like a cutting remark and then you actually think about what you said and you're like oh I didn't I didn't mean to be that mean I just I'm sorry I take it back I take it back yeah it's fully that moment where she just in a fit of just being irritated she actually says something that's really mean to her sister and then just poor Eleanor she did not deserve that oh no yeah and then she turns to her mom and she's like, I don't understand her. Again, this building out the the real story of tension in this classic is it's between Eleanor and Marianne. It's not between them and their love interests. And I think this moment is another tendril of showing how these two women really don't relate to each other as well as they should for how much they love each other. Yeah. So then we cut to Eleanor being sad in her room and looking at her little handkerchief that says ECF. Is that for Charles? Is his middle name Charles? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. But can I can I just talk about something else for a second in this scene that I noticed? Yeah, go for and it. I noticed it earlier and I had a bit of a moment because I was like, Eleanor Dashwood's dresses all have pockets <gasps> and I just I don't know why I fixated on that but like earlier when she's walking with Edward when he first gives her the handkerchief and they're walking she puts it in her pocket and just now she like pulls things out of her pocket and you know I'm a 21st century woman I like pockets but not enough dresses have pockets and so I just got really excited I don't know if that's like period piece accurate though but it kind of makes sense did they used to put pockets in dresses I don't know but I just I was really here for it and I just like felt there's no greater joy than when you find a dress or a skirt that you love and you try it on and it fits great and you look fantastic it has pockets pockets yeah no literally um, and I know that's such a random thing, but I str- I was like, wait a minute, does this good here Eleanor Dashwood in this Jane Austen era adaptation, her dress has pockets. I wonder, so I have noticed like there were a few moments where she was like putting on or taking off an apron that would like definitely have pockets, but like a stylish apron that like goes with her dress. Yeah. Um, I wonder if she just like either one wears those all the time because she's uh, working around the house or two, she's just a style icon. I mean, come on, Eleanor Dashwood. I feel like Eleanor Dashwood is a style icon as well as a goddamn liar. So, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Now I'm just going to think about her pockets the rest of the movie. like because I Wait, do you think she's just been keeping his handkerchief in her pocket this whole time? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. We all just burst into tears simultaneously. <laughs> we absolutely did. I'm tearing up now. Eleanor. Eleanor. Oh, my God. Okay. So she's like looking at his handkerchief in the next scene, which she pulled out of her pocket most most definitely <laughs> and is like stroking the little, little letters on it. And it's very cute. Then we cut to Marianne 
at there's like a dinner party and she's drawing a silhouette of Willoughby. He's standing behind this screen and she's like drawing his silhouette and the lighting and everything was just really reminding me. It was very draw me like one of your French girls, but <laughs> she was drawing him. Yet another movie starring Kate Winslet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's why I thought it, but I was just like, wow, she is. She was so intense on it. And he, she was. He, I mean, I also have a note that comes later in the in my notes that's about the very same movie. So yes. We love a good Titanic reference. Yes. Brandon is watching her drawing Willoughby and looking kind of sad. Poor Brandon. Poor Brandon. Always poor Brandon. How many times did I write poor Brandon in my notes is the real question. Because it's definitely like a lot. The whole movie is just simultaneously like pity for him, but also just like this deep yearning to hold him. Yes. Is that just me? Yeah. No, no, no. Not just you at all. You saw me when he came on screen the first time. I got up from the couch and went and knelt in front of the TV. That's a collective reaction, I think, to Alan Rickman as Colonel Brandon. So, yeah. you know, great. <laughs> that's a universal reaction. I'm glad. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Then we cut to Eleanor kind of like doing finances and Mrs. Dashwood being like, do you want us to starve? And Eleanor's like, no, I just want us not to eat beef. It's too expensive. And then she looks up and sees Willoughby and Marianne in the other room. And Willoughby cuts a lock of Marianne's hair and kisses it. And underneath this scene, first of all, weird. But second of all, underneath the scene, I noticed last night when I was watching this for like the sixth time that the song that's playing is the softly softly and I was like it's perfect also because uh you have Eleanor dealing with like the dire financial circumstances of the Dashwoods while Marianne is like literally just in the corner having this weird intimate moment with Willoughby where he cuts off her hair and kisses it and it's like it's so intimate for something that is a bit you know and this is a bit of a strange thing to do, but I was like, I feel like I'm witnessing a very private moment here. I'm really just like, oh, I feel like I should look away. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, it was like something people did. They gave locks of hair. This is something we got a lot of mail about as well, because Molly was very fixated on the hair lock situation when we were reading the book. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where it doesn't translate well, but I think the scene is shot so beautifully that it kind of captures it for what it is, which is like, something sweet and intimate as opposed to something gross and weird, which it sounds like. Yeah. No, it is very intimate and it is very sweet. And you can see the affection between them. And then just to see Eleanor look over there, it's so heartbreaking because you like, there's a part of her that's like, oh, they're being really obvious. And she's also really concerned about the finances. But then you kind of get the sense there's also a part of her who's like, I just want what she has. But with Edward, I want Edward to cut a lock of my hair. You're so right. The 
simultaneous way Eleanor has always dealt with Marianne is with disapproval and also a little bit of envy mm-hmm. for her capacities. Yeah. The fact that she does want Edward to cut a little lock of her hair is something that I think was very present in the book as we saw when she thought he was wearing a lock of her hair on his hand and a plot line that I am heartbroken didn't make it into this movie, but we got it in the uh, handkerchief, the handkerchiefs a little bit. But yes, the thirst is is real. The Eleanor thirst. So the next day we get a shot of Marion and Willoughby riding through town and screaming and people gossiping about them. I just love that moment. It's so weird. It is very when random. They're coming down the path in the carriage like it's a freaking race car. And she's like, yeah, yeah, she's like, yeah. it's like he, she's on his motorcycle. That's exactly what it's like. And I think my favorite bit of that is there's some people who are on the road who like fling themselves out of the way. <laughs> and then at the top of the hill, there's like some kids and the kids start running along going like, yeah, like chasing them. One of the kids is like running along trying to like keep up. And it's really, it's really funny. And then everyone else just looks really scandalized. Yeah, and Mrs. Jennings is there, and she's like, I think they'll be married by the end of the month. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, it is. They are acting out. They are being teenagers, you know, like, racing through the streets, and it's a lot. Especially considering one of them should know better, because he is not a teenager. Right. Right. He should know better, but he doesn't. Or he does, but he actively chooses to ignore his instincts or (laughs) upbringing. Um. Then we cut to Eleanor yelling at Marianne about it and Marianne being like, it's fine. Like, it's whatever. And as they're fighting, Colonel Brandon starts riding up on a horse. With his floppy hair. His fluffy little hair. I come to issue an invitation. An invitation. And he's so proud of himself. So he's like, he says that he's come to issue an invitation. He gets off and he's he looks so happy and like so pleased to invite them. He's like, a picnic. And then he like looks like he really wants them to say yes. He says it's gonna be on his estate at Delaford, which it used to be in the book, it was like at his cousin's Friend's estate. house. It was like so silly. So this makes a lot more sense. And he's like, uh it's gonna be Thursday next. And like Charlotte is coming up especially and Marianne just like notices Willoughby riding up in the background and isn't paying attention to him at all. And Eleanor is like mortified. Yeah. And he's like, of course we would be happy to join you, Colonel. And he, we see him looking at El- at Marianne watching Willoughby ride up. And he goes, I will, of course, be including Mr. Willoughby in the party. And it is so heart-wrenching. And then she's like, oh, I would be happy to join you, Colonel. And y- you just feel his heart break a little bit every time. And like the way, the thing about Brandon that I think makes him a little bit more lovable is that unrequited love is not necessarily an attractive trait in someone, especially if they're jealous all the time. Brandon's not jealous. He has resigned himself that this will not happen. Mm-hmm. So instead he he's kind of like, no, I just love her and I want her to be happy, which is very bad for him, but also like makes your heart hurt for him. <laughs> it does and it's just very like the way that he you can see him really I think with him and also Hugh Grant the way that they sort of stumble over their feelings a little bit I literally wrote down in my notes soft soft boys have floppy hair and stumble over their feelings because <laughs> that's because because they do yeah whereas uh Mr. Willoughby is just kind of floofy he's just a bit he's floofy and the other two have their soft soft floppy like fringe man bangs and I'm here for it the fringe man bangs are also extremely 1995 they're extremely 1995 Willoughby went in a different direction but that's okay that's our differentiating factor right who are the good boys who are the bad boys the floppy hairs the good boys the floppy haired boys are the good boys (laughs) um but yeah it's just watching him try to like it's not even that he's trying to control himself because he just gets the situation, but it still kind of hurts. Mm-hmm. So when you see that moment when he's just like, ah, okay, I don't have her attention anymore. I guess maybe if I mention Willoughby, maybe it should look at me and it works. And you sort of are like, oh, oh, it hurts. It hurts so bad. This brings us to one of my favorite exchanges in the movie, which I know Molly has words about. Oh, 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 yes, 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 yes. Well, first we get Willoughby coming, picking up Marianne and Brandon literally helping her into the carriage, being so selfless in his unrequited love. And then as they ride away, we get an exchange between Eleanor and Brandon, which, yes, I do have thoughts about. Brandon says, your sister seems very happy. And Eleanor says she's too happy, in my opinion. She is not one to hide her feelings and kind of gets carried away with it. And he's like, oh, like she's wholly unspoiled. And she says, 
um, yeah, too unspoiled. She she needs to learn the ways of the world. And then he, you see his face shift, like the wrinkles around his eyes, like go soft for a minute. And then he says he once knew a lady who, as Eleanor would put it, became too acquainted with the world too fast and the result was only ruination and despair. Do not desire it, Miss Dashwood. And then he walks away. The the exact quote is, I knew a lady, very like your sister, the same impulsive sweetness of temper, who was forced into, as you put it, a better acquaintance with the world. The result was only ruination and despair. Do, Do not, not desire, desire it, Miss Dashwood. Dashwood. I feel like that line captures exactly why Colonel Brandon loves Marianne so much. And we've gotten a couple people really putting it out there that there are some problematic aspects of that romance, which there are for sure. But one of the things that I've never totally agreed with was that he's just projecting his former love for another girl onto Marianne. And you could read it that way. I choose to read it differently. I read that Colonel Brandon has a type and he's specifically drawn to women who are unapologetic in their feelings and their um, vivacity for life because he can't have that. He he can't express himself that way. And so he's sort of floored when others do. And I think that's that's really beautiful, personally. Well, I think also the thing is that, you know, th- that comparison is made quite a bit. And, you know, when you love someone like that and you lose them, there's always a part of you that's going to continue to love them no matter what. And seeing that spark in Marianne, of course, that is going to intrigue him at first and be the perhaps the starter, but he still gives her the space to be her own person. He's not trying to like put her in a box and say, this is who you are. Like that might've been the instigator. And obviously those, those connections are still going to happen. He's still going to, things are going to happen that will, will remind him of his former love and see those, those similarities in Marianne, but he's still fully like, he lets her be her own person. He lets her, you know, as much as he can, like have her own autonomy and give her the space. And he's not trying to force anything on her. And he's not he's not putting her up on a pedestal or anything. Like, I think it is just, that's the difference, isn't it? If he was projecting anything she did outside of that would be a problem. But it's not. He's just, he just lets her be her. And that's the difference, I think. Absolutely. I think that is the difference. And putting her on a pedestal is something that Willoughby does. And that's something that in the book, at the end of the book, they talk about, which is that no woman will ever live up to how Marianne Dashwood was for him. And that's the problem because he will never be happy. And Brandon does allow her to be who she is and not hold her to some unrealistic standard like Willoughby does. Devastating. Devastating. Soft, soft boys have floppy hair and feel their feelings. Soft, soft boys have floppy hair and feel their feelings. Literally beautiful. It's poetry. (laughs) Screw sonnet number 116. Yeah. We have soft, soft boys with floppy hair. Feeling their feelings. (laughs) So, all right. Well, now we've talked about, about his feelings for her. For me, this scene is a teeny tiny glimpse into the friendship that was between Colonel Brandon and Eleanor, which I think that they mostly take away from us in this movie. And I think that the reason they mostly take it away is because they don't want us out there shipping Colonel Brandon and Eleanor because obviously uh, Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson have amazing chemistry. They're best friends. So they don't want people getting confused with the plot. <laughs> I, I think it's also like the the Brandonor friendship is a very interesting like piece of the story, but it's not vital to the telling of the story. And this is only a two hour movie. And so Emma Thompson sort of rests on her heels here and just kind of gives into the fact that she and uh, Ellen Rickman have this incredible friendship that is captured in moments in this film. And she relies on their natural friendship to translate and make these two characters friends, I guess. Yeah, and it does. It does translate in this moment and then in a little bit when, and well, at the end of, the chunk that we're discussing today when he says he comes and he's like, let me take you to Barton from Cleveland. And she's like, that's exactly what I wanted. Like the moments like that, you're like, okay, they get each other. They are friends with each other. Um, but we don't get that same like deep friendship, but it's fine. It's fine. You're right. To me, it was essential for the telling of the story because this story is about, it's not only about sisters, it's about all the different kinds of love 
and there's sisterly love, there's romantic love, and there's friendship love, which between the two of them is something that by the end of the book, you convinced me to appreciate. And I don't think we get enough of that here, but we get it in in glimpses like in this scene. Mm -hmm. So the next scene is getting ready for the picnic at Delaford. And we see that Charlotte is there with Lucy, um, Imelda Staunton, Hugh Laurie as Charlotte and Mr. Palmer, the most perfect pair that ever there was. <laughs> I'm not someone who just obsessively pictures the actors who play the characters when I read a book, but Imelda Staunton playing Charlotte and Hugh Laurie playing Mr. Palmer is some of the best casting of minor characters in Jane Austen films that's ever happened. Yeah, they're incredible. It's just like they're they're in my mind. And I started watching this film when I was quite young and these two always stuck in my brain as just perfection. Yeah, I will say that I th- I pictured Charlotte being a little younger. No offense to Imelda Staunton, but she plays it so well. So I'm um, like, yeah, it's the same as what we've talked about with the rest of this movie is that the ages are all off. But yeah, <laughs> no one's the right age, but it's a great movie. Otherwise, it's like a, it's like a play in that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Hugh Laurie really took a character that was not much in the book. Like we talked about him and he was funny, but he wasn't much. And Hugh Laurie just made him the star of the show. I mean, I've tracked every single movement of Mr. Palmer through this movie. Whenever he is on screen, I wrote it down because he's so good. So funny. He is. He's so good. And just his look of annoyance is just incredible. And just the way like he mumbles under his breath anytime Charlotte says something. And you're just like, Mr. Palmer. Yeah. Most of my like my like best line delivery options are just him being like Ugh. <laughs> my favorite will get there is if only this rain would stop if, if only, only you, you would, would stop, stop. <laughs> also i don't know if you've noticed this but whenever mr palmer's reading a newspaper i think it's every time but i definitely noticed it twice the name of the newspaper is called the porcupine i did not notice that and that feels incredibly accurate because he's prickly because <laughs> he's one prickly <laughs> customer particularly the place I noticed it the first is after they are invited to London and she grabs onto his newspaper in excitement and then he like smooths it out and you can see the name of it and it's the porcupine and I paused it and was like did they they did they, they went they there did. they did they did they did I genuinely thought I knew everything about this movie and this is brand new and amazing thank you <laughs> you're welcome this is what happens when I I'm one of those people who like when I watch things a lot and I'm definitely a repeat watcher there's like that nostalgia factor so I love re-watching things I have a lot of fun when I've watched something a couple of times I'll start to like look at details like that or I'll start to like watch extras in the background for their reactions to things and like various stuff like that so I just get I get a little bit also I I troll IMDB like it's my job when I when I love movies and things but I just yeah I just noticed that this time I was just like oh my god that's incredible so good so uh, wow so those two are there I will say um something that is different here from the book is that Lucy has been brought there by Charlotte instead of just showing up which is something that they do. I think they're trying to make it uh, less clear that she's conniving. They also killed Anne. She's a single only child, Rip Anne, which I think later on we'll get to this, probably not in this episode, but the next episode or the next chunk of the movie, why I'm upset that they killed Anne. But for now, whatever. Yeah, no, I, I think it is actually relevant to this part as well because Lucy is a little bit more um, demure and naive seeming in this part. Yes. And in general, I think she plays into that a lot more than the Lucy of the book who is like self-assured and knows what she's doing. A criminal mastermind. A criminal mastermind. I definitely wrote Lucy as a mastermind, but that's a completely different part, which we'll get to. Amazing. That's in my notes somewhere. Um, at this point, I have to say, speaking of Hugh Laurie, this is jumping back a minute, but I was watching this with my roommate and I told her a lot of our listeners wrote in to tell us that Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson dated in college. And uh, I'm sorry, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so 
good, Janae. Okay, so they dated in college. They were in a theater troupe together in college and dated. And there are some very good images on the internet of the two of them looking just so sexy. Oh, my God. And Emma Thompson, in an interview, referred to Hugh Laurie as a, quote, well-hung eel, end quote. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) Changed my life knowing that. Didn't want to know. I'm I'm sorry, Molly. You can't just spring these things on me. I'm so sorry. Um, but it changed me and I needed to change you knowing that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, wow. I think we need to end the recording because (laughs) I don't know that I can go on after knowing this. Yeah. I didn't have that on my bingo card. So I think I'm, I might have to tap out. That's, uh, Wow. It's a, like <laughs> upsetting and also thrilling at the same time. It's all the things. So I told my roommate this at this moment because I was like, oh, my God, like, look at their their chemistry that they have together on screen because they're like also really good friends now. Like they dated a long time ago. Now they're pals. And um, she was like, wow, were you anyone if you didn't date Emma Thompson? Was Emma Thompson just the Taylor Swift of her time? I mean, kind of. She she dated a lot of the like best dudes in the British scene. I think of it more like a Gilda Radner situation. If you know Gilda Radner at all, Gilda Radner, may she rest in peace, was an icon of the SNL comedy scene. And she dated like all the guys on SNL and they all loved her, like even after they dated her because she's such a talent. She is so sharp. And they were all like, yeah, no, she's Gilda. She's the best. Um, Gilda Radner, unfortunately, passed away at a very young age. but she was like the it girl of the SNL comedy scene for a while. If you look at any of her work on the show, she's one of the best players they've ever had. Wow. Uh, but she dated like a bunch of them. She dated Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, a bunch of the other guys as well. And like what an icon and a legend. And Emma Thompson did the same in the the British like masterpiece, masterpiece theater, theater scene. scene. <laughs> so good for her. Good for her. Good for Taylor Swift. Good for all of them. Date Date around. Do your thing. Yes, yes, ladies, ladies, uh, enchant everyone around you with your dazzling talent. That's what we want to do. Yeah. That's what we all aim for. Just be Emma Thompson. Just be Emma Thompson. Like, I would date her. My God. I just want to hang out with her. She just seems like such cool people. And then things that you find out about how, like, so this was the start of Kate Winslet's career and how she was feeling really self-conscious and basically stopped. She was, like, skipping meals. And Emma Thompson said, no, no, we're not having any of that. Oh. And just, like was like, no, no, I'm protecting you. We're not doing this. Yeah. There's quite a famous story of Haley Atwell, who plays Peggy Carter. Yeah. Love her. Um, She was in a movie with Emma Thompson and the director told her to drop a bunch of weight. And Emma Thompson invited her over for dinner and she wasn't eating much. And Emma Thompson's like, why aren't you eating my food? And she was like, oh, you know, I have to lose weight for the role. Emma Thompson called up and was like, hey, if you ask her to lose weight, I'm dropping this movie and I'm your biggest name. Yep. That's incredible. She's a queen. She's a queen. She's a queen. So back to... This movie, though, they introduced Willoughby to Lucy, and I noticed that they did a little linger on him. I think they're trying to throw us off her scent. Um, They're trying to make us think that maybe she's into Willoughby because they have this like moment where he's like, very good to meet you. And she like does her little eye bat thing that she does. Then Lucy asks if she can sit next to Eleanor on the journey to Delaford and that she's heard so many good things about her. And Eleanor is like, yeah, but those are all exaggerations like Mrs. Jennings is you know, too kind, too kind. And Lucy's like, oh, but it was from an entirely other source that I heard you praised and one not at all inclined to exaggeration. This is how we work in Lucy Steele's conniving nature is this scene in particular. And you can really see it because they were, she's like, oh, I was so excited to see you, Mrs. Jennings. And Mrs. Palmer is like, "Uh, excuse me. No, you couldn't stop talking about Miss Dashwood. That's who you wanted to see. Yep. And Then she's like, oh, I want to sit next to you. I've heard so much about you from an anonymous source. Mm -hmm. She does this thing where she like tilts her head down and looks up through her eyebrows a lot. And it's like, she, you know what? That's her move. She does that a couple times. There's a bit she does it later. And that's when I wrote down Lucy is a mastermind. Mm -hmm. To be fair, she's got those strong brows. So she's using them to her advantage. Yes, she absolutely is. Can we also just talk about Colonel Brandon in this moment when they're preparing to go to this picnic and that's happening. Marianne is like standing waiting for Willoughby and Colonel Brandon is just like checking all the horses and dogs and he's just so excited. He's like a kid at Christmas, just like we're going on a picnic and then it gets ruined. And then it gets ruined when a horse 
rides up and it's like going really fast and there's a guy on it and he's like he jumps off the horse he's like is Brandon around and they're like oh he's over there the guy runs over to Brandon he hands him a letter Brandon reads it and then he's like my horse (laughs) he's like I gotta get on my horse and they're like what where are you going and he's like I must away to London immediately and he's like impossible that John Willoughby says impossible not John Willoughby John Middleton says impossible and Brandon goes imperative and he gets imperative (laughs) imperative and he's like I gotta go I cannot afford to waste a minute and as he's riding away Mrs. Jennings is like I hope it's not serious (laughs) (laughs) I love that moment because it's like no it's actually just totally casual yeah like he's not running away at full speed on a horse (laughs) and leaving you all um and they're all like wait can't you stay for a little bit and go and he's like no gotta go now so he leaves and they're all like oh shit guess something bad happened and that's the cancellation of their picnic and the end of this episode of pod and prejudice thank you so much for joining us janae we're gonna see you in a few minutes and the listeners will hear you in two weeks but do you want to tell the people where they can find you yeah, so you can find me, I guess the best place would probably be Instagram. My personal Instagram where I do lots of stuff is Janae Actually. That's G-H-E-N-E-T, actually. Like, love actually, because I was a big dork when I thought that up. Um, <laughs> and then my podcast one is Book Better Podcast. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Fantastic. All right, listeners, that concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Until next time, stay proper. And find yourself a soft, soft boy with floofy hair. Yes! Oh, so good, so good, so good. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.